you pray with me? Father, um, I need you this morning. I need you to speak to my heart. Father, you know the things that I hear in my head and the, the lies that I so quickly believe. And so I need you to remind me of the truth that I've been studying in your word. And I need you to speak to my heart in such a way that I can pour out what it is that, that is you. And Father, you've brought the people that are in this room here this morning... And they come here, some feeling guilty for something they did last night maybe or, or for how they talked to their kids this morning. Some are broken hearted. Some feel like you have abandoned them, that you were not there. And so we need you to come and speak. And, 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 I, and I know that I am incapable of it. Uh, on my own. And so I, I'm asking that your spirit would just be so present in this room. And I surrender um, my, my thoughts and my actions and my, my mouth and my body all to be used by you. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for the things that I, that I struggle to believe that would hinder the truth from being proclaimed today. And so uh, forgive me for that and, and use me. Use uh, me as a broken, messed up person to speak uh, the truth of your gospel this morning. So meet us here, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm guessing that you've probably thought a little bit about your goals for 2012. And I'm guessing because you're here this morning, because you showed up at church on January 1st, you probably have some spiritual goals for 2012. Some of you maybe have thought, this year I'm going to spend more money on other people than on myself. Maybe this is the year that you're going to tithe. Maybe this is the year that you're going to kick that habitual sin. You're going to stop looking at porn. You're going to stop gossiping about other people. Maybe this is the year that you're going to read through the Bible. You're going to make it all the way through. You're not going to get so far behind in Leviticus and Numbers that you give up. And this year, when you tell somebody, hey, I'm I'm going to pray about that for you, you're going to really do it this year. As I've been looking forward to this new year, the one question that kept coming to my own mind was, will I be faithful In 2012, will I be faithful? What about you? Do you you think you'll be faithful this year? You're off to a good start because you showed up at church today, so you're ahead of most of the people probably. Well, I've got one passage, well, not even a passage, a verse. It's it's not even a verse, it's a part of a verse that we're going to look at today. And it's Romans 3, 11b. And it says, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. What's your reaction to that? 
What are you thinking about when I say that? Do you immediately jump to, well, right, in my unregenerate stage, uh, before Jesus redeemed me, I did not seek Jesus. Maybe that's where you go with your thoughts. You, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I got up this morning. I'm at church here. Obviously, I'm seeking God. Well, in this passage that this verse is found, uh, Paul puts together a bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms and from Isaiah, in which he says things like, no one seeks God, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one does any good. All have turned aside. And it all leads up uh, to verse 20 that says, uh, no one has been justified by the law. It's by the law that we are conscious of our sin. And then it says, but, but there's a righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from the law. There's a righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from the law. But the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this morning what I want to do is I want to, I want to see how one particular prophet, the prophet Hosea, bears witness to this righteousness of God that comes from apart from the law. And see if in looking at the story of Hosea, if we can discover what it means that no one seeks God. God is an amazing communicator. He loves to communicate with us. I mean, he's given us his word so that we can hear from him anytime we want. And he uses all different kinds of methods of communication. He's not just a lecturer. He doesn't just give us a bunch of do's and don'ts, although he does give us those. He doesn't just give us a bunch of list of consequences and blessings, although he gives us those. But his word is full also of stories. Jesus, when he walked on the earth, his main method of teaching was through story, through parable. But God doesn't even just use fake stories. God is the author of every story that's ever existed. And so even the true stories are being authored by him. And all of those true stories are pointing us to an even truer story. And that's the case with Hosea. Let me tell you a little bit about prophets first, though. Now, during the time of the prophets, God anointed certain men to go and speak the words of God. So when the prophet spoke, it was as if God was speaking. And he would go to great lengths to make sure his message was communicated. He would sometimes ask crazy things of his prophets. He once asked Ezekiel to lay on his side for a very, very, very long period of time to illustrate a point. He asked Jeremiah to walk around with a yoke around his neck. And he asked Isaiah to walk around naked. For those listening online, they're really going to miss a killer ending to this sermon. So, all right, I knew that was probably off color. Um, But God would go to great lengths to communicate to his people his story. And what he did with Hosea is even, it's crazier than any of that that he asked of those other men. Now, I imagine Hosea, when he knew he was going to be called to be a prophet, I bet he had heard about Isaiah. And I bet he was prepared for God to ask him something crazy. But when he got to God, this is what God said to him. Hosea 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, 
the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I always assumed that when God told Hosea this, that God told him to go find a prostitute and marry her. But as I started reading some really smart guys and scholars and theologians and and guys that I never want to do what they do, but I'm glad that they did it, um, most of them believe that that's not actually what God was doing here with Hosea. Most of them believe that God was telling Hosea, go find a woman who who has not done anything wrong as of yet, but who's fully capable of becoming an adulterer. So, so what's happening here at the very beginning of this story is that God says to Hosea, I'm going to let you see your wife as I see her. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God knows the heart. And so right here at the beginning of the story, we have no idea what Gomer looks like. Gomer, by the way, is who Hosea marries. Uh, We have no idea if she was beautiful or not. We have no idea if she would have been attracted to Hosea or not. But even if she were beautiful and attractive and alluring to him, God wanted him to see her as he sees her. He wanted him, before he made this commitment of marriage to her, to know what she was capable of doing. And what she was capable of doing was betraying him and deserting him and creating all kinds of evil against him and ultimately defiling his marriage bed over and over and over again. I was thinking about my aunt when Kelly and I got married and, and our pre-marriage counseling uh, and what a waste of money. I mean, pre-marriage counseling is the biggest waste of money and time. I mean, I, it, because you don't believe it. Like, you don't think, oh, marriage is going to be hard and I have to, we had to keep practicing how to fight. Like, we had to like, do these fake scenarios where we had to fight. But the whole time you're thinking, this, is, this isn't real. As soon as we're actually able to get married, we're going to complete each other in ways like no one else has ever completed. And, and it's just going to be all love and, and love and lots of love. I mean, at least that's what I thought. It's going to be lots and lots of love. And we don't believe it. We go into our marriages, most of us, I would think, blind. We don't really know the capacity that the other has to hurt us. Who goes into a marriage thinking, one day I'm going to divorce this person, or one day I'm going to commit adultery? We don't do that. But here at the very beginning of this story, God allows Hosea to see Gomer as she really is. And that's how God sees us. God knows the depths of our hearts, and yet he still chooses to love us. Deuteronomy 10, 14, and 15 say that that all of the heavens, even the highest heavens, and everything on earth belongs to God, yet he has chosen us. He has set his love and our affections on us. Romans 5, 8 says, For God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God looked at us and saw what we were capable of. He saw the ways in which we were going to hurt him and defile him and the evil that we were going to commit against him. And yet he still chose us. 
Well, did that initiating, did that unconditional, I see everything about you and I'm still going to love you, love, make Gomer faithful? It didn't. Has that love, that initiating love, made you faithful? Hosea and Gomer get married. And, and I imagine it's, it started off pretty good. They had a child together. I'm sure that was a really happy day for Hosea. I imagine if I was Hosea, I would be thinking, you know what? Because I was faithful to God and I, and I loved this woman, even knowing what she was capable of, I bet she's so blown away by the love that I have for her that it's going to curb that behavior. That, that what's in her heart, that will never be manifested because I love her so much. And I love her in spite of her capacity to sin against me. But baby two came out and baby two didn't look anything like Hosea. And then baby three came out and baby three really didn't look like Hosea. So much so that Hosea named baby three, not mine. (laughs) And this is what it says in Hosea two, verse five. It says, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. So Hosea calls her out. He exposes her sin. And what's her response? For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So when when Gomer is um, confronted with her sin, she simply replies, well, you don't provide for me anyways. My lovers, they provide what I need. They give me what I want. You you provide me nothing, so I'm going to leave. How are you when you're confronted with sin, with your sin? What's your reaction? Uh, One of the hardest parts of my job as a youth pastor, uh, and this happens almost every year, uh, is that I, I, I see a freshman girl come in to the youth group and, and I can just tell that she really wants to be loved. And I can just tell that she really longs for a boy to tell her she's beautiful. And usually about halfway through the year, I can tell that she's made a really bad choice. I feel also compelled to say, because I just read this a couple days ago and it, it shocked me, um, Uh, maybe she didn't make a bad choice. Maybe she was also taken advantage of. In in a recent survey of college boys, one out of ten of them admitted to having raped someone in high school or college. Now, the word rape wasn't used in the survey because even anonymously, we're not going to admit that, most of us. But in this survey, based on the behavior that they said they had done, one out of ten college boys had done that. And so I had this freshman girl and, and, and either she's made a bad choice or someone's taking advantage of her. And then for the next two or three years, I see her struggle with the role that she's been assigned. I see her playing the role of the whore. But isn't that often how we do when we're confronted with our sin? When we, when we see our sin, when someone exposes it in, it, in, in us, don't we normally run back to that sin? 
Didn't we go to the sin in the first place to kind of ease our pain and, and to get rid of our guilt? And so when we start feeling guilty again, we run back to it. And we run back to it to, to, to get more and more so that we feel better and better. But all the while, we're becoming more and more the vilest form of that sin. I mean, that's what addiction is. Now, we can all probably say, okay, well, that, that makes sense in Romans 3, 11b. The person who's confronted with their sin and then goes back to it over and over again to try to find rest and freedom, obviously that person's not seeking God. But how about when we run to religion? How about when we run to our goals for 2012? Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century theologian, um, and I have, to, I have to throw in a few of those just so that y'all know that I'm more than a youth pastor. Um, and so this, the theologian, um, when asked about this passage in Romans, he said, people are fervishly searching for meaning and purpose in life. They're looking for a way to escape the guilt that they feel. And they're looking for the things that can only be found in Christ. But we make the gratuitous assumption that when they are seeking the blessings of God, that they are seeking God. That is the dilemma of the fallen creature. We want the blessings of God, but we don't want him. So when we're confronted with our sin, when the consequences start piling up, is our move towards religion, is our move towards different activities of accountability. Are we seeking God? I can't answer that for you. You have to search your own heart. But there's another great illustration by Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon uh, said there was this farmer who had a carrot, and, and, and he, he, he grew the largest carrot that had ever been grown. And he was so overwhelmed with how large the carrot was and, and, he, and he was so overwhelmed by the love of the king and how benevolent his king was that he thought, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to present this carrot to the king. And so uh, one day he got all dressed up in his, in his finest farmer attire and he went to the holy, not the holy, excuse me, the royal courtroom and stood before the king and he presented this enormous carrot. And the king was so overwhelmed by the gift that he said, uh, farmer, uh, I'm going to extend your land. I'm going to give you more land. And not only that, I'm going to give you so much gold and silver so that you can farm the land, that you can, you can hire other people uh, to work the land so that you will be prosperous. And so the farmer went away with just handfuls of gold and silver. Well, there was a nobleman in the courtroom that day, and he was watching what was happening, and he thought, well, I've got some nice horses. Tomorrow, I'm going to present the king with a horse. And so the next day, the nobleman walked in and he brought his noble steed. It was a beautiful, tall, huge horse. And he presented it to the king. And the king said, thank you. And the nobleman stood there for a second and a longer second. And it became very awkward. And the king finally said, can I help you with something else? And the nobleman said, well, begging your pardon, sir, but I was here yesterday. I, I saw the farmer present you with that strange, abnormal carrot, and um, I'm giving you my best horse. <laughs> and the king said, well, you are right that the farmer gave me the carrot, but you, sir, 
have given yourself the horse. So when we're confronted with our sin, our good works, our religion, are we giving them to God out of love, out of a sincere and contrite heart? Or are we giving them to get his stuff? After the woman leaves, this is what the scripture says. It says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. As she pursues her lovers, she will not overtake them. As she seeks them, she shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil. And it was I who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for gods. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which covered her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast and her moons, her Sabbaths and her appointed feast. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So here we see the consequences of her sin taking full effect. Stripping her of everything that she was looking for to find hope and security. Leaving her with nothing. Now, when she was confronted with her sin, did she become faithful? Did she return home to Hosea? No. When the consequences got so bad, did she return home to Hosea? Did she become faithful? Spoiler alert, she doesn't. She doesn't go home. And so I, the past week I've been trying to wrestle with what, what does that mean? What, what does that mean that, that when her sin was exposed and, and when she was called to repentance and, and when the consequences of her actions got so bad, what does it mean that she didn't go home? And, and I started thinking about the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told. And I thought, well, but he went home. You know, his situation got so bad that he went home. If you're not familiar with the story, prodigal son takes all his father's uh, inheritance, or he takes his inheritance from his father, goes off, squanders it, lives like a crazy man. Uh, The consequences of his sin get to such a point that he has no friends, he has no food, and he's in the mud, and he's sitting in the mud, and he thinks, wait a second, my father's servants eat way better than me. My, My father's servants actually have more food than they can eat, and I'm starving to death says he came to his senses and he said, you know what, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father that I've sinned against God and I've sinned against him. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Make me your servant. So I've been wrestling with, all right, what, is, what does that mean in light of this story of Gomer and Hosea? And I thought, you know, because everyone teaches that the prodigal came to his senses and, and went home to repent. But why did he go home? To get the father's stuff, right? 
He wasn't going home to be with the father, to to love the father, to be called son again. He actually didn't even want to be called son. He said, make me a servant. And and by making me a servant, you're going to owe me. You're going to have to pay me something. So so this prodigal son, this this revelation that he had wasn't that, oh my goodness, my daddy loves me and and I just want to love him. I want to offer him praise and worship and, and, and be in his presence. No, he wanted his stuff. So when the consequences get so bad, you're running towards God. Is that to get his stuff or to get him? The story ends with God telling Hosea, go buy your wife back. Now, while Gomer was off with all her different lovers, one of those lovers made her a slave. Which is just the way with our sin, right? The thing that we go to to seek freedom and, 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 and comfort, uh, if it's apart from God, every time it's going to leave us into slavery. As Paul describes it, the sin that so easily entangles. And so here she is, a slave. And God says, go buy her back. Now, this, isn't, this is me being dramatic. This isn't in here. But I imagine that Hosea thought, what, what are you talking about? Are, are, you, are you kidding me? I loved this woman that you told me was going to hurt me. And then I called her out in her sin. And, and, and the consequences of her life got so bad, and she never came back to me. She didn't come groveling back to me, pleading for mercy. And, and she, she didn't even respond to it. And now you're telling me you want me to go and buy her? Do you know the shame that I have felt? Every time I walk out of my house, every time I preach your word, I have to look out at a crowd and see men and wonder, have they been with my wife? But God said, go, go and buy her back. And so he did. Now, I imagine that Gomer, as she's standing on the platform being auctioned off, uh, probably naked so that those who are going to buy her would know what they're getting. I imagine that she was shocked when she heard her husband's voice bidding on her. I bet she thought, oh my goodness, he must really hate me. He must be so angry with me that he's willing to pay me back just to get his revenge. And I bet she started praying to any and every God that she had ever worshipped and said, please not him, please not him, please not him, anyone but him, anyone but him. But Hosea won. And I imagine as she's getting off the wooden platform and she's trying to cover her nakedness and her shame, that she barely looks out of the corner of her eye to see her husband, to to brace herself for what she's about to encounter. And how surprised she must have been when she saw her husband coming towards her, not ready to berate her, not full of rage, but with tears streaming down his face. And can you imagine what she felt when he rushed up to her and he took off his cloak and he covered her nakedness and he held her tight and he said, now you will be my wife. Do you think that that made Gomer faithful? We don't know. The story ends there. 
But God is a God who loves to tell true stories to tell us an even truer story. The story God was telling through the real life marriage of Gomer and Hosea was that God initiated a love with us knowing exactly what we were going to do to betray him. That God demands holiness of us and wants us to come back in repentance. But, ultimately, no one seeks God. And so he had to come and seek us. You see, Jesus is our truer Hosea. He's our truer prophet. And Jesus didn't just have to go to the next town To buy us back. He had to come from heaven to earth. And Jesus didn't just have to reach into his pockets and pull out 15 shekels. He had to spread his arms out on a cross and experience the full wrath of a holy God against sin. So that we could be justified. And he didn't just have to take off his cloak to cover our shame. He had to be stripped naked and mocked and ridiculed so that we would forever be clothed in the beautiful, gorgeous garments of Jesus' righteousness. So will that make you faithful? I um, can't answer for you, obviously. Uh, But I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I spent a lot of time thinking, will that make me Faithful. Will I be faithful in 2012? I really hope so. I really hope that that will make me faithful. But I don't know that it will. I know myself. I know my track record. I know that I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And you know what? It's been a really hard couple weeks thinking about this. Because that reality stinks. But the best thing about it is that as I struggle with thinking about my own faithfulness. And if, if what Jesus did is enough to make me faithful. I keep hearing Jesus over and over and over again say... I will be faithful. Don't you get that the truer story being told here is not about Gomer's faithfulness, but it's about Hosea's faithfulness? Don't you see that the point is about God's faithfulness to us? His steadfast love endures forever. So no matter how far I go, no matter what I get into, no matter what sins I I, I bring out, no no matter what shame I bring on the name of Jesus, Jesus will be faithful to me. So maybe in 2012, our goal should be more about seeking to know the ways in which he is faithful. Maybe when we read our Bible this year, we ask every time, God, show me your faithfulness. Show me your love. Show me the depths of my sins so I can see how far down you stooped. Not so that I can earn your approval. Not so that I can work my way up. So that I can be blown away by the fact that this really happened. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. I want to end... um, 
with telling you a little bit about a man that some of you probably are familiar with. His name's Brennan Manning. Uh, he's, a, he's a priest and a, a speaker. Um, he's written several books, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Abba's Child. If you want to read some books that are just beautifully written and profound about God's grace, I encourage you to read his books. His, his catchphrase, or what he says all the time, is God loves us unconditionally, just the way we are, not as we should be. That's kind of his, his phrase. Well, he just recently came out with a memoir. Um, and in it, he is very honest. And he's very honest about his sin. And he's very honest about his alcoholism. Um, he talks about uh, that he would be speaking at conferences to thousands of people, telling them about God's love and God's grace and that his righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And then he would go back to his hotel room and get drunk and be drunk for a week. And his family wouldn't know where he was. He was married for a while, but his wife eventually left him because of his alcoholism. Uh, and, and, and he shares all kinds of stories like that in this memoir. Now, um, my counselor, um, and maybe that's a good goal for 2012. We should all go to counseling, even if you don't think you need it. I, I am a big proponent. Um, but she writes the, uh, uh, a testimony at the beginning of this book. And, and she herself struggles with alcoholism. And in it, she said, the first time she read this, she got angry. She was mad. And she thought, how dare you use God's grace? You have made a mockery of the gospel. And that was my initial reaction, too, when I read it. I thought, oh, my goodness, really, Brennan? Really? You're one of my heroes. You, you talk about God's grace in such beautiful ways, and this is how you're living? And, and right now, you have just given the best um, proof to those who say, yes, we're saved by grace, but... Like, you've just written the document that they can produce as an argument for that. But then I remembered, wait a second... How does God use but? 1 John 2 says, My children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And then I, it hit me. He wrote the best defense for those of us who like to say, don't sin, but. Because when you get to the end of his book, he could have spent a lot of time talking about all the people he had changed and, and the, the things that he had been involved with for Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, but he didn't. He just told his true story. And at the end, we saw a truer story, and that is of Jesus. Most people tell their testimony and a little part of it's the gospel, a little part of it's the good news, and then the rest of it's about overcoming and achieving. Brennan didn't do that. And so I want to end with reading you his introduction. Um, he wasn't able to write much, much of this book because he has wet brain, which is a disease you get from chronic alcohol abuse. Um, but he was able to pen these few words. He said, this is a book by the one who thought he'd be further along by now, but he's not. It's by the inmate who promised the parole board he'd be good, but he wasn't. 
It's by the dim-eyed who showed the path to others but kept losing his way. It's by the wet-brained who believed if a little wine is good for the stomach, then a lot is great. It's by the liar, tramp, and thief, otherwise known as the priest, speaker, and author. It's by the disciple whose cheese slid off the crackers so many times that he said, to heck with cheese and crackers. It's by the young at heart, but the old of bone, who has led these days in a way he'd rather not go. But this book is also for the gentle ones who've lived among wolves. It is for those who have broken free of collar to romp in fields of love and marriage and divorce. It is for those who mourn, who have been mourning most of their lives, yet they hang on to shall be comforted. It is for those who have dreamed of entertaining angels, but found instead a few friends of great price. It is for the younger and elder prodigals who've come to their senses again and again and again and again. It is for those who strain at pious piffle because they've been swallowed by mercy itself. This book is for myself and those who have been around the block enough times that we dare to whisper the ragamuffin's rumor, all is grace. Or as I like to say, I'm so glad it's all about grace. Amen.